Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 26th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. Red Scare, Red Scare. (laughs) A fitting introduction to the year 1953. We love to go through the events of the year, but there is one overarching thing happening in everyone's minds, and that is indeed Red Scare. Yeah, it's 1953, so everyone's freaking out about communism. Mm -hmm. In a number of ways. So in world events, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg are executed, and we have... A 1953 Iranian coup d'etat. Right, where the U.S. backed the overthrow of a a, a democratically elected government. We've talked about it before. America's (laughs) never done that before. We also have the British government in British Guiana fearing communist influence, of course, suspending the constitution, declaring a state of emergency, and occupying the colony with their military. So... That's always good. Seems kind of panicky about little bit British Guiana, the linchpin of the empire. I guess. I mean, if you let communism thrive in British Guiana, London is next. Yes. And then the newly inaugurated U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Spoiler alert. It's 53. It's a new president year. You know, within his first year doing the most important work. He approves Ah. the top secret document of the United States National Security Council 162-2, which states the U.S. arsenal of nuclear weapons must be maintained and expanded to, of course, counter the communist threat. Ah, that does make sense. That's the most important reason to do that. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, we'll sort of be talking about this a little bit later on because it matters in the context of the movies, but you do still have Congress looking around for communists, particularly in Hollywood, because Hollywood's just full of communists. And so we have some blacklisted writers and directors and stuff involved in these days, but I'll leave that for later. We'll talk about specifics. So as we said in other news, Eisenhower sworn in this year, very popular guy. Both parties wanted him to be their candidate. Very weird. That's not going to happen today. Extremely odd. No. Also, this year, the Korean War ends. Also, communist implications, right? China gets involved, and then we're like, I guess North Korea can stay communist? Yep. We've given up on North Korea. We have. (laughs) We're ready to leave. Yeah. Exactly. Earl Warren gets sworn into the Supreme Court, ushering in the era of the Warren Court, when a lot of hugely influential decisions happened, like... Brown v. Board of Education, Loving versus Virginia, Miranda rights come from there, right to privacy comes from Griswold, just all sort of manner of decisions yeah. that uh, were hugely impactful and are mostly going away at this point, but I guess let's not linger there. No. In international news or more international news, Stalin dies this year. Mm-hmm. Launching the great film <laughs> Death of Stalin many years later. Yes. Everyone go check that out. That's a good time. Also this year, Queen Elizabeth was crowned. Gosh, that's a long time ago to think it was 1953. And obviously, she's been in the headlines lately. What a long reign. We also have Jonas Salk testing his polio vaccine on himself and his family this year. So good things were soon to come for the 
children of America and other places. Also an important scientific advancement news, Watson and Crick mm-hmm. steal Rosalind Franklin's work uh, and, you know, discover the double helix structure of DNA. So yeah, that's good stuff. So cool. And then in just a like a wow, that happened kind of event, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay reached the summit of Mount Everest. Big mountain climbing news. Yeah, they were the first, I guess, non- Native people, yeah, like to do Westerners, that. Yeah. <laughs> to come in and climb Mount Everest. So that's 1953. Mm-hmm. I mean, eventful, yeah. I'll say. A lot was going on. I don't know how anyone was keeping up with the news and finding time to go to, to the, the movies. Okay, so what was nominated this year? Okay, so first we have From Here to Eternity, a drama about a rifle company stationed in Hawaii in the days leading up to Pearl Harbor. It stars Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Clift, Frank Sinatra, Deborah Kerr, and Donna Reed, directed by Fred Zinnemann, written by Daniel Teradash. It was nominated for 13 Academy Awards, and it won eight. Wow. Best, yeah, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Frank Sinatra, Best Supporting Actress for Donna Reed, Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Black and White, and Best Film Editing. Next up is Julius Caesar, an adaptation of the Shakespeare play about the assassination of Julius Caesar. It stars Marlon Brando, James Mason, John Gilgood, Deborah Kerr, and Greg Garson. It was directed and written by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, nominated for five, and it won one. Best Art Direction, Black and White. Next, we have The Robe, a religious drama about a Roman tribune who goes on a journey of faith after leading the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It stars Richard Burton, Gene Simmons, Victor Mature, and Michael Rennie. I love the name Victor Mature. <laughs> That's good. Directed by Henry Coster, written by Gina Kaus, Albert Maltz, and Philip Dunn. It was nominated for five Academy Awards, and it won two. Best Art Direction, Color, and Best Costume Design, Color. Next, we have Roman Holiday, a romance about a princess who runs away for a day. It stars Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn. It was directed by William Wyler. It was written by Dalton Trumbo, Ian McClellan Hunter, and John Dighton. It was nominated for 10. And what? Kind of. Yes. It was really written by Dalton Trumbo, but again, Uh, it. (laughs) it was nominated for 10 and it won three. Best Actress for Audrey Hepburn, Best Story, Dalton Trumbo, in retrospect, and Best Costume Mm -hmm. Design, Black and White. And finally, we have Shane, a Western about a laconic gunslinger reluctant to help a group of homesteaders ward off an aggressive cattleman. It stars Alan Ladd, Gene Arthur, and Van Heflin, directed by George Stevens, written by A.B. Guthrie Jr. and Jack Schur. It was nominated for six Academy Awards, and it won one Best Cinematography, Color. Uh, we also want to mention what the top five highest grossing movies of the year, just to, to put us again back in 1953. Mm. The highest grossing Cast movie that year back. was The Robe, followed by a documentary called This is Cinerama. Hell yes. Which we'll talk about in a second as well. Then From Here to Eternity, Shane, and then How to Marry a Millionaire. So a good number of our Best Picture nominees are in that top five. Yeah, three of them. And Impressive. Yeah, it's pretty good. So we also always like to talk about what happened in the film industry, anything notable sort of outside of the nominees. And I think we have a, a, something that's a pretty big deal. There was a clue in the top five highest grossing films as to what it was. Maddie, what happened? <laughs> Let's talk about, well, before we get to Cinerama, let's talk about Cinemascope. Mm. So this was a new 
in, you know, advancement in film technology this year, Cinemascope is actually a lens and a like way of projecting in widescreen. So people are pretty used to seeing things in widescreen these days, I think. But at the time, who is that dramatic? Yeah. <laughs> so Cinemascope is the lens, which actually they gave a special Oscar this year to Bausch and Loam for inventing it. That's right. Bausch and Loam, the contact people. <laughs> they know lenses. They know lenses. So Cinemascope is this like lens filming projection process, but then Cinerama of this is Cinerama fame mm. is actually like the screen, this sort of wide curved screen upon which to project these widescreen films. And just a little bit of delight. If I, if I could go see this is Cinerama, I'd be all here for it because they <laughs> describe it as the first 12 minutes is a little documentary about the history of pictures going all the way back to cave images really and through black and white and the way that we've projected things and then at the 12 minute mark the guy says this is cinerama and then the image widens out to be widescreen the drama of that and then the crowd goes wild yeah people lose their minds so importantly too for our nominees the robe was the first film filmed in cinemascope big deal so the top two movies really we're all about that widescreen, yeah. baby. <laughs> People could not believe how much they could see on the other side of It's almost this. like just looking at the world and seeing <laughs> right. things all around you. It's just like that. Okay. So what won that year? What won that year is From Here to Eternity, as we mentioned earlier. And the general consensus at the time, we didn't find a lot of writing about it from contemporaneous sources, but I feel like the fact that it won eight awards it was nominated for 13 tells you a little bit of the story of that yeah i don't think that people were shocked by the victory right it tied gone with the wind for most wins at the time with eight it's a lot it's a lot of wins it seems like it's dropped off a little bit in people's estimation kind of quite recently so yes we looked at the ron tomato score and the critics' consensus, you know, that little blurb that Ron Tomatoes will write for you about what's everyone saying, starts with, it has perhaps aged poorly, <laughs> which is not a great sign. And then the other thing we found is we usually see what's on AFI's top 100 list, and we're looking at the most recent version, so their 10-year anniversary, that's from 2007. Get it together, AFI. How many times do I have to ask for a 10-year updated version? And From Here to Eternity is not on that list, but the 97 list it was on and it was number 52 so yeah so 50 spots it dropped <laughs> over the course of those 10 years it seems like since 1997 people have been less hot on from here yeah. to eternity make of that what you will i guess we'll get into our own opinions about it as we go through so let's start with your opinion are you mad that it won best picture i think no i think i'm fine okay how about you I'm going to say yes. Okay. Let's go through the other nominees. So would you have been mad if Julius Caesar won? No, I would not have been mad. You? Same. Okay. Same here. Would you have been mad if the robe had won? Yes. Also, <laughs> How about you? yes. Would you have been mad about Roman Holiday winning? Yes. Same. And would you have been mad about Shane? Yes. Same. Okay. <laughs> potentially controversial, but we'll see. We will. Okay. So I suppose we should start with the first double yes, which is the robe. The robe. Oh, God. I'm so excited to talk about the robe. 
Yeah. Okay, so very quickly, it's about this Roman tribune played by Mm -hmm. Richard Burton. Richard. And he's like a playboy, you know, he really is about Roman guy. He doesn't get along with the next in line for the throne, Caligula. To be fair, it is Caligula who is like has gone down in history as not very cool. It's true, but he doesn't get along with him. And he's going to the slave market and looking at his slaves he can buy. And then he runs into a girl he knew when he was a child. And she's like, I've been in love with you always. And he's like, me too. And they're in love. Apparently when they were children, they agreed to marry each other. Yeah, and you got to hold up your end of the bargain that you made when you were 11. It's true. And so he pisses Caligula off. Caligula has him sent to Judea, which apparently sucks. And he's put in charge of leading the crucifixion of Jesus. When he gets there, his slave sees Jesus and immediately is heavily converted to Christianity. Which is fascinating. It is. After the crucifixion, Richard Burton gets Jesus's robe. The titular Mm -hmm. robe. The robe. And his slave steals it from him. And once the slave steals it from him, he starts having like hallucinations and visions about, you know, Jesus, because God's real mad about it. So then he comes back and everyone's like, you're crazy. Maybe the thing to do is to get the robe back. You'll break the curse. Yeah, well, because they think it's not God, obviously, because they believe in their own Roman pantheon of gods. And so they're like, it must have been cursed by like a witch or something. (laughs) So if you get the robe, then you could break it. Yeah, he tracks down the slave. He (laughs) he reconnects with the robe. (laughs) And then he too is converted to Christianity. And then the rest of the movie is about him being Christian and the Romans persecuting him. And then at the end, Caligula becomes emperor. He decides to punish the guy and then the girl's like i will be punished too because i love him and they both it's wild are sentenced to death and then they walk into heaven they really do it's kind of like the end scene of greece yeah (laughs) like ascending (laughs) and that's the rope that is the rope i mean i struggled to figure out even what my thoughts about this movie were because i really just feel like nothing for it i feel like if i was christian Mm -hmm. then maybe i'd be like yeah cool story about how important faith is or something but since i don't give a shit i mostly was just like okay like i didn't find the story particularly interesting or compelling yeah i had a hard time engaging with this movie as we are increasingly living under christian religious tyranny it's it's real it's real tough for me i thought richard burton was really overacting throughout this movie (laughs) my brother was in and out of the room and he's like it seems like he's acting for the stage and i was like that's that's yeah that's probably true i didn't understand the love story no the love story makes no sense because yeah first of all it's wild that she's like i loved you when i was 11 so now i still need to marry you and he's like totally agree and you're like what (laughs) why neither of you know anything about each other now but then it was intriguing because he sort of just goes away for a while in the middle to go on his christian quest and she doesn't really know anything about what's happening with him or where he is and then he finally comes back and is like here's where i've been i heard all of these stories about this amazing guy and i have to tell them to you and she's sort of like okay i can tell that you believe that (laughs) But she has no actual experience with this Jesus character and she doesn't really care. And so then it was really interesting to me that at the end she was like, I will also go with you to death because it's the right thing to do. 
Yeah. I was also telling my brother about that end scene with them walking off into heaven and the clouds start coming in. And he said to me, did they high five? And I said, no, but that would have been awesome. (laughs) That would have been sick. (laughs) That would have been really cool. (laughs) I mean, here's the problem, right? Here's the dramatic and narrative problem with Christian mythology is Jesus has to die for everyone's sins for him to do whatever he's supposed to accomplish. So it actually is a good thing. And so, like, when you see Jesus get crucified, you're like, well, how am I supposed to feel about this? I can't feel bad because it's supposed to happen and it's a good thing. I guess Judas is a traitor, but he had to give him away so he would die for everyone's sins. I I struggle just with the narrative of like, okay, so it's good and I'm happy. I think it's sort of about, like, it's good for the world and is what's supposed to happen, but the people who are personally involved can still feel guilty about it, I would think the romans thing is that he didn't know anything about or care about this guy because why should he honestly he wasn't involved in finding him or tracking him he just happens to be in town and the guy who's in charge is like you should go run this crucifixion so he does (laughs) but then i guess it's like if you accidentally like if you were in charge of the execution of someone that you later found out was innocent then you would feel really bad about it whether or not that person had to die to save the souls of humanity or whatever. (laughs) But that's the problem. The problem is in the end, it's a net, not just good, but the ultimate good. I'm just saying me as a viewer, I don't know how to feel about it. Okay. I mean, that's fair enough. I feel bad for the other guys who got crucified because it seems like a terrible way to die. I totally was thinking that, and I think that a lot anytime they show Jesus and the other guys at the crucifixion, I'm like, what's up with these other guys? Like, no, are they, what happened with them? Did they, did they deserve to get this No, punishment? no one deserves like, No, no one deserves this. So what, what the fuck's going on here? I was trying to think about like, okay, if I'm watching this, like I'm watching any other kind of fantasy story, right? Because I can watch fantasy stories where there's magic and things, you know. Yeah. But I just, we didn't get to see any of the magic, though. No, you don't get to see any magic. I just feel like a lot of times Christian films require your buy-in when you're watching it. Because, like, there's the scene where the slave meets Judas. And then when he says his name, thunderclaps. And if this is a thing you're watching for the first time and you don't know what's going on, this is silly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if you don't know who Judas is, you're like, okay. It's like the scene in Star Trek Into Darkness where Benedict Cumberbatch very dramatically says his name is Khan to people who've never yeah, met him before. Yeah, know about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, That's I know funny. who he is, but they don't. So he's like, my name is Khan. And they're like... Khan. And they're like, okay, okay. that guy says his name really weirdly. I don't yeah. know what his deal is. Yeah, you definitely need buy-in. I think you're right. There's a, there's an interesting question of like, it doesn't work for me and probably doesn't really work for a lot of non-Christians. But if you are a Christian watching this movie... Are you supposed to feel bad that he killed him? Because you're right, that it was the right thing to do. It had to happen. It's arguably the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of humanity. Yeah, I don't know how you're supposed to feel watching this as a believer. We'll never know. We said it was the highest grossing film of the year. I do wonder if some of that's because it was in In CinemaScope. We should say that this movie has a 38% on Rotten Tomatoes currently. And so while we have not tracked it before, I think we're going to start looking and seeing like, is this the lowest rated movie we're ever going to watch? Because that's pretty bad. (laughs) It's not great. I mean, to be fair, it doesn't have like, it has not that many reviews Mm -hmm. because they didn't, haven't imported whatever the reviews were at the time. So it was probably like a couple of contemporaneous reviews and then a few people later who watched it in recent years and were like, what is this? (laughs) So I don't know. It's not a great score. No. And I don't think it's a great movie. So let's move on. Sure. 
to Roman Holiday. So Roman Holiday is about Audrey Hepburn plays this princess from, I don't think they ever say where she's from. She's from a fictional European country. And she's visiting all these places. She's on this long press tour. It's very tiring and she has to be all lovely and perfect all the time. And she's getting pretty exhausted. And so then she's in Rome. And she has a little bit of a kind of like an exhaustion breakdown. Mm -hmm. And her doctors come and they give her some sort of sleeping drought or whatever. And she leaves. She sneaks out of the palace after she has taken this medication because she just has to get out of there. But before it kicks in. Right, before it kicks in. And then she gets very sleepy when she has (laughs) left the palace and is happened upon by Gregory Peck's character, who is a reporter who is supposed to go interview her the next day. But he doesn't know what she looks like because he's not really that good of a reporter, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she's just like sleeping on a bench in the middle of Rome and he finds her and he tries to get her to go home. And then she's very sleepy and he thinks she's drunk. And through a number of circumstances, he ends up accidentally having to take her home to his apartment where she can sleep it off. The next day he wakes up, he thinks he's missed his interview, but he hasn't seen the news that the princess, according to her people, has taken ill and will not be doing the interviews that day. But really, of course, they can't fucking find her. (laughs) And so he goes to work, he sees a picture of her, he finds out that the woman he has sleeping on his couch is the princess. So he goes back to try to get this exclusive story with her by not telling her that he knows who she is and taking her for a day on the town with his friend, the photographer. And the two of them take her to see all the Roman sites. And he and her kind of fall in love with each other and weirdly. And they have a great day. And then she has to go back home at the end of the day. And the next day he shows up at the interview with his photographer friend she sees that he has known who she is all along and they have this eye conversation where she somehow understands that he was very well meaning about it and is not going to publish the story that he was going to write about all the things she did and the photographer signals that he was taking pictures of her the whole day and she's somehow also fine with that and then they give her the photos and you know they like go their separate ways because she has to go live her princess life and he's gonna keep being a reporter yeah and that's roman holiday thoughts So I saw this movie for the first time. I know you had seen it before. Mm -hmm. I had a problem with the pacing of this film. It's a rom-com. And it's interesting because of all the types of movies that I think of having a pacing problem, like rom-coms from this era or before, like screwball comedies, I usually don't have issues with because they're usually pretty fast and, and zippy. Yeah. But I found all the scenes in this film to last just like a little too long and the timing of the jokes didn't ever seem quite right to me. And then I just thought a lot of their day could have been a montage. Yeah, it very well could have been a montage and that might have been awesome. <laughs> so yeah, I thought it was fine. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about this one. I feel like there are a few very good bits that are almost exclusively physical comedy bits Mm -hmm. that work really well I think there's a scene when she's all sleepy and he's taking her to his house and he's like dragging her behind him up to his apartment and there's this stairwell this spiral staircase and he's pulling her hand along and she ends up on the other side of the staircase and it just plays very funny I think the scene when he has his photographer friend meet them at a cafe and the friend doesn't know that 
she is the princess. So he shows up and the friend keeps almost blowing our reporter's cover and the reporter keeps kicking him and throwing stuff at him and stuff to get him to shut up. And so he'll knock him out of his chair. And then the guy's like, okay, I'll leave thinking he's trying to get him to take a hint and leave. And he's like, no, no, you have to stay. And he's like, that scene I think plays funny. There's a scene at the beginning when you're first meeting her and she's seeing all of these you know, it's like a receiving line where she has to meet everyone and she has lost her shoe because she her foot hurt or something. So she took her shoe off and then she couldn't find it again with her foot. And so there's just like a couple of funny physical comedy bits. I think you're right that it's probably too long. I think this movie is two hours and yeah. it really doesn't need to, to be. be a tight um, 90, 100 minutes. And I also just feel like the relationship has never really worked for me because him not telling her who he is and planning to write a story about her is obviously pretty skeezy. But then also she can never be herself with him either because she's not telling him she's a princess. So you're just sort of like, what are these people really connecting about? I don't know. And I don't think we see that really during their day. They're just hanging out and it's nice, but to what end? Yeah, exactly. So I don't find that you're really emotionally affected at the end when they have to leave each other. I'll say Audrey Hepburn, cute as a button. Adorable. She's adorable in this. But yeah, I think it's just, it's fine. It was filmed on location. It looks Rome beautiful. looks great. The palaces they used for the palaces. Yes. Extraordinary. Indeed. I do like when he thinks that she's drunk and so he puts her in the cab and then he's trying to get her to tell him where she needs to go and she just keeps saying, Coliseum. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like. I mean, she's just really lucky he was not a creep and or a rapist. A thousand percent. Yeah. Definitely. But yeah, I mean, it's fine. It's not my favorite Audrey Hepburn movie. We should say, though, because we set it up earlier, this is the film that was written by Dalton Trumbo. Oh, yes. Thank you. Who at the time was blacklisted because of McCarthyism, could not receive credit. So Ian McClellan Hunter, who we said was credited, was actually just like a friend of his who took the credit for the movie. Yeah. So... Good on him for getting an Oscar for no reason (laughs) or whatever. But I think, right, retrospectively, they put his name back on the film. And I think they ended up sending his widow an Oscar. So Yes, I think that's how it worked out. Also, it wasn't until 2011, by the way, that they restored his credit. Blacklisted director Bernard Vorhaus also worked on the film as an assistant director under a pseudonym. So all them communists were making this movie. Okay. Should we talk about Shane? We should talk about Shane. Okay. Shane is a Western, as we said. It is about a gunslinger who doesn't want to sling guns anymore. He's done with that life. He Mm -hmm. comes into this homestead area. And as we mentioned, there's a cattleman who's trying to drive all the homesteaders out because he's just gotten this new contract with a reservation to raise all their cattle. He needs all the land back or something. And the homesteaders are like, hey, we have a right to be here under U.S. law. So we're standing our ground. But they're being roughed up. And yeah, so he's staying with this particular family. It's a husband, a wife played by Jean Arthur, and a little boy played by a young Brandon DeWilde who falls in love with Shane. And he wishes Shane could be his dad. <laughs> and so, you know, they keep going back and forth. The The cattlemen are threatening. They're like, we won't be threatened. Cattlemen are threatening. We won't be threatened. They end up killing one of the homesteaders. They bring in Jack Palance, who is a very famous gun for hire, who's super deadly. He kills the homesteader. And so they have to have a final confrontation. The husband is the one who wants to do it. But Shane's like, I won't let you. You need to be here and be with your family. Mm -hmm. So he knocks the dad out and he goes to have this final confrontation with the cattleman and he wins, but he's injured. And then he leaves town and the little boy is like, come back, Shane. Shane. Come back, Shane. Shane, Shane, come come back. back. 
And that's the movie. It sure is. How'd you feel about Shane? I, I, it didn't do a lot for me, if I'm being honest. We've talked previously on this podcast about how neither of us are really huge Western fans as a rule, but we have obviously been surprised by them in the past. Mm-hmm. Stagecoach. I just feel like this is most of the things that I don't like about Westerns, other than just not loving the setting and not loving that it's almost always has something to do with a racist caricature of Native Americans, which actually isn't really happening in this one. That's which true. Is nice. I just feel like they're all about toxic masculinity run amok. Like the whole thing is just, I don't like any of the people. I don't like any of the things that they do. <laughs> I don't understand why they're doing the things. It's a lot about honor and that sort of thing, but yeah. like for dumb reasons. And there are a lot of these homesteaders who are fucking farmers and ranchers, right? Mm-hmm. Like these people are just trying to grow stuff and live their lives. And they are all being menaced by this guy. And at first he's just annoying them, but then he actually has one of them killed. And some of the homesteaders are like, we got to get out of here. Like, yeah, I, can't I can't deal with this. Get murdered. I got like eight children. <laughs> so then you're like, okay, that feels reasonable at this point. And Alan Ladd's character is like shaming them all about deciding to leave. And you're like, they're just farmers, man. Like <laughs> they shouldn't have it. to go through with this. And so, like, I understand in theory that he's right, that none of them alone can stand up to this guy, right? Yes. But really, it's that all of them together. Sort of, yeah, all of them together could potentially do it. But I just I feel for all of these people. And I don't understand them shaming them for wanting to leave when this is what's happening. I would leave. <laughs> I would leave. Also, why in a Western? Is there always some person that sees the main character and on site is like, I fucking hate that guy. We got to get him out of town. There's this scene where Shane walks into the saloon slash general store of the town. Yeah. And he just walks in to order a soda or something. And one of the guys who's in the bar is like, I fucking hate that guy. (laughs) (laughs) He just does. And so he's like attacking him. And at first he says a lot of mean stuff to him. And Shane has some amount of self-control and just is like, okay, cool. And he leaves. And then the child is like, Shane, you wouldn't let him say that to you, right? (laughs) And so then the next time it happens, Shane kicks the guy's ass because he can't let it stay. And you're like, I don't get this. This just, this doesn't speak to me. Men are so dumb. That's how I feel watching most Westerns. I'm like, men are stupid. This is insane. (laughs) So my experience watching this movie, I am in the process of rewatching the Adam West Batman series. And Mm -hmm. a few days before I watched this movie, I watched an episode of Batman, which I'd never seen before, with a villain whose name is Shame. And there's this little blonde boy in the episode. And we spend so much time on this little blonde boy who was the most annoying kid I've ever seen in my life. And I didn't realize it was a parody of this yet. But I'm like, why do we keep cutting to this little blonde boy? Why are we spending so much time with this child we've never met before? I'm trying to watch Batman. And (laughs) the, the explanation my brother and I came up with was, this kid won a contest or something? Why else would there just be this child here all the time? This kid must have won a contest desk because there's a scene too where Batman sits him down and is like violence isn't the answer so anyway and then watching this movie I did assume it had some relationship to it and man that little kid in this movie is also annoying irritating as all get out yeah, he was true. nominated for an Oscar for this role why though I don't know <laughs> it's bad <laughs> 
It's bad. I don't understand that. It's really bad. So, you know, I don't know if a lot of people walked away from this movie being like, man, that little kid is something else because they were parodying it, at least on Batman. Yeah. But yeah, I I found the little kid irritating. I understand that the idea is you're supposed to be seeing Shane through the eyes of an innocent, but I don't really know what that's supposed to do for me. It bummed me out seeing Jean Arthur in this role. <laughs> I know. I was like, we love Jean Arthur. What's she going to be all about? Nothing interesting. Because I'm, just... I'm used to seeing Jean Arthur being this very self-possessed, sassy lady. And she, here she's just this completely browbeaten wife character. And this is one of two movies from this year that involves a woman just sobbing in hysterics, begging the man in her life not to go get himself killed. And he's like, I gotta, you wouldn't respect me if I didn't. You wouldn't think I was a man. man. I know I could, I could listen to you, my wife and, and do what you want me to do and believe that you would still love me and wish I were alive, but I can't, I must go be a man. And you're like, yeah, Jeez Louise, this is rough. There's more than two. There's at least three scenes with women begging their oh, men to not you're, go you're get right. themselves killed. <laughs> right. I, I'm thinking there might even be four. <laughs> it's, like, it's so, it's like, it's too much. So obviously Jean Arthur was fine in this movie. And I don't even know that it's necessarily a bad role, but something about seeing her in this role, yeah. it really bummed me out. Yeah. Jack Palance is cool. He does kill. Yeah, I didn't mind Jack Palance. He does kill a former Confederate. This is another Western movie where they do have a Confederate Yankee thing going on. Yeah, but we're supposed to like the Confederates is what's happening. Yeah. This is also one of two movies where one of the characters is named after a Confederate Yeah, general. I was going to mention that too. <laughs> what's going on, 1953? 1953's a rough year, you guys. So yeah, and this Jack Palance is supposed to be the bad guy gunslinger, but he's a Yankee, which apparently is a real bad thing in this world. And so when he's supposed to kill one of the homesteaders, the way he's going to do it is by getting him to draw first, right? Mm -hmm. So you can get away with it. And so the way that he convinces him to draw first is making fun of the Confederacy. And you're like, yeah. And you're like, yeah, tell him. Fuck those rebels. (laughs) And then he kills him. And I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to be sad? Oh, wait. Oh, oh, shit. I also thought it was ridiculous. This is a very small nitpick, but Shane rides off on a horse to go have the final confrontation. And then the boy starts chasing after him. And then the boy's dog starts chasing after him and the dog can't catch up to the boy for like a while and i'm like how yeah. fast is that kid he's keeping pace with a horse <laughs> how, how slow is that dog <laughs> Dude, look right. slow. he's keeping up with a man on a horse and outrunning a, the child like a is terrier very he's there to watch the final battle yeah. and he gets there Almost as quickly as the kid is like Superman or something. I did think there was an interesting exchange. So the cattlemen are talking to the homesteaders and they're like, we cleared this land and made it ours and you have no right to come on here. And the homesteaders like, you stole this land from the Native Americans and get out of here. So I was like, interesting acknowledgement of that, I guess. But yeah, I've definitely seen reviews and listened to people talk about how like this is a very affecting film for them and the Shane character is very tragic. But I watch them just like, can you guys not? And it is, I think, a story that gets told a lot. I was telling you, I was also watching this and I'm like, oh, this is the same exact plot as Roadhouse, mm-hmm. except Roadhouse is awesome. Yep. <laughs> like, There's one small difference. Roadhouse yeah. is awesome. Shane never rips anyone's throat out. So if he had, I would have been interested. Also, if the person he'd been ripping the throat out of was a Confederate. I wish Shane had been not a Confederate sympathizer. That might have helped. Yeah, that part doesn't really happen in Roadhouse. 
No. And he never says anything super cool like pain don't hurt. So Yeah, Shane should have had some catchphrases. You know, he needs some zingers. I'll say the scenes in the dark I found almost impossible to tell what was going on. Yeah. So that was a stylistic choice. Oh, I will say positively about this movie. They shot it, I think, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It looks beautiful there. Yeah, I mean, Wyoming's fucking gorgeous. <laughs> there are beautiful mountains all around. Beautiful country. Oh, here's the thing. I know there are implied romance vibes between Shane and the wife. Yeah. I was not really getting the vibe from them. And then all of a sudden at the end, the husband is like, it's fine that I'm going to go die because Shane will take care of you. And he's leaving his wife for this guy. And you're like, what the fucking shit? I mean, there's a scene where they dance together. I don't know. Yeah, but they're doing, it's like in public, it's fucking fine. The only stuff that's going on with Shane and the wife is that the wife keeps all through the movie having to tell the child, don't fall in love with Shane. Yeah. Because he's going to leave. Mm-hmm. Please don't fall in love with Shane. He is not going to be here forever. And of course, the kid can't help it because no. Shane's so cool. It's really cool. I don't know. I don't know either. It's Shane. Yeah, the whole Gene Arthur part just really bummed me out. Yeah, it's not using her strengths. Oh, also, there's a guy who works for the bad guy who then later comes and tells Shane, like, stuff's going down. And I felt like his arc didn't really exist. He got beat up by Shane one time and threatened to be replaced. And then by the end, he's just like, and I'm out of the life. We missed this guy's whole story. He had a lot going on off screen. That's the the same guy who decides he hates Shane when he first sees him. Yeah, he really had quite the arc, but you don't you don't don't really know why. Yeah. So this one also didn't work for me. Yeah, I wasn't into it. Okay, so we talk about, I guess, our our mixed one, which is the winner from here to eternity. Sure. So the brief story, there's a lot going on in this one. Truly there is. The brief story of From Here to Eternity is it's about this rifle corps is how they're described at a military base on Hawaii. And so Montgomery Clift's character is this guy who's transferring in from a different department who had been a very successful boxer in the military because as you and I now know mm-hmm. boxing is like a real big thing <laughs> in the military really he had been very successful but he had this incident where he was boxing with his friend and he blinded the friend accidentally and so now he's like I'm not boxing anymore I'm not gonna do it reasonable it's the worst thing he could ever decide to do <laughs> so he gets booted out of his department sent to this new one he's demoted and the guy who runs this Rifle Corps is this like ridiculous dude who only cares about boxing and everyone who's a boxer in his unit. Well, apparently winning the boxing championship is his road to a promotion. Sure, because it's very important. (laughs) So everyone who's a boxer gets preferential treatment and they all get promotions and stuff. And anyone who is not, he doesn't care about. And so he's really trying to strong arm Montgomery Clifton to joining the boxing team and Montgomery Clifton won't do it understandably so and so he keeps you know like giving him all these shit jobs and getting him in trouble and all sorts of nonsense through the course of the movie and then we also have Burt Lancaster who is the second in command to this guy who actually seemingly runs the whole place because the guy who's in charge doesn't give a shit he just walks in for five minutes every couple of days and is like what do I need to sign and then he leaves (laughs) well he's also like you can sign for me yeah he's like if I'm not around just go ahead and sign my name That seems not allowed, but okay. Oh, and you also have Frank Sinatra doing some fine character work in this one who's, I don't know what his title is, but he's just around. He's one of the guys. (laughs) He's in the army. He's He's in the army. He's a private with Montgomery. And so it's about sort of the romantic lives and the goings on of these gentlemen and the women that they meet and have romances with on this base. And then at the end of the movie, after a bunch of stuff has happened, 
Pearl Harbor happens Mm -hmm. out of nowhere. They're real surprised. Yes. And, you know, lots of people die. Yeah, I think that's what happened in Pearl Harbor. Yeah. It's a day that will live in infamy. It has been described that way. So what are your thoughts about From Here to Eternity? So, yeah, I said no to this, obviously. You You said yes. I said yes to this, obviously. (laughs) You heard me. Uh, I said I didn't think this should win Best Picture (laughs) is really what I meant. And I think the thing for me was some of the storylines just didn't work. So like you said, there's a lot going on. Burt Lancaster, yes, is having the storyline about how he's running the base and doesn't necessarily like what's going on. But he's also having an affair with the captain's wife. Yep. And I found all of their interactions to be bizarre. I agree with you. There's a very famous scene, obviously, from this movie with those two kissing on the beach as the waves come up. It's the scene. When that scene happened, I was like, it's happening. (laughs) It's so interesting because we've talked about this before, but I think with all these iconic scenes in my brain, if I haven't encountered them before, they're the climax of something. And it seems like half the time they're not. No. (laughs) This happens very early on in their relationship. And she is acting like if he doesn't become an officer... She will be killed if she marries him. She's like, I can't marry you unless you're an officer. And you're like, why? What are the consequences? And they never explain them. And she's like, unless you're an officer, it can't happen. Like, is it illegal? What's going on? You're acting like it's the worst thing in the world. I mean, I think she just doesn't want to be the wife of not an officer is really what's happening there. Like, like, she has lived this life as the wife of an officer. She's accustomed to certain things. And she expects to get to still have those things when she divorces her husband and marries Bert. And also, sort of nothing ever comes of it with the captain. And I just Mm -hmm. felt like that whole storyline could have been cut. And we could have spent more time with Montgomery Clift and what was happening with him because he really is the center of it. I think there's definitely some interesting stuff happening here. I think, again, it was a little too long. Pacing's too slow. A portion of the film just didn't work. And I also found Montgomery Clift's relationship with his girlfriend kind of strange. And it is also, again, we get a scene where she's begging him not to go off and get killed and crying. And he's like, I gotta do it. And I'm like, I hate this. Why though? I hate this so much. I'm so I'm sick of this. I'm already sick of this. Because I've seen it three times in these five movies. <laughs> and the movie ends with the two women on a ship leaving Hawaii. And it's just, it's just hard to feel what they're feeling because I just am not super invested in their relationships. I will say all the Pearl Harbor stuff looked great. Mm -hmm. They did a really good job filming the attack. The other thing that bothered me with this movie, which again is this this discussion about toxic masculinity, is there are several times throughout the film where someone will say like, oh, why don't you just report him? And they're like, I'm no snitch. I'll never squeal. And you're like, can someone just please tell the inspector general what's going on in this company? Uh, it's really hard to feel bad for people where someone's like you could take steps to try to resolve this and you're like i will not i will bear it like a man (laughs) i can't report him because then he wins the only way for me to win is to bear a bunch of abuse for no reason (laughs) and so a similar thing so frank sinatra's character is having conflict with the guy who runs the stockade played by ernest borgnine 
and he ends up getting put in the stockade because for some reason he's on duty and he decides to just leave and get drunk and goes AWOL. Well, he was supposed to have the weekend off, Kelsey. Okay. I also thought it was very interesting that no one says AWOL in this film. They all say A-W-O-L. They say absent. <laughs> yeah, they say A-W-O-L because no one had started saying AWOL yet, apparently. I know. I was like, oh, I wonder when that became common in the popular vernacular to say AWOL. Somewhere after 1953. And so and he gets put in the stockade with this guy who hates him. And he's being abused, like very intensely abused. Seriously abused. And someone gets out of the stockade and Montgomery Cliff says to him, like, oh, why doesn't he tell someone? He's like, he says he won't snitch. And I'm like, he's being killed. He should tell someone should tell someone. Why will no one tell anyone? Absolutely. (laughs) It's just very frustrating as a viewer. I don't know if that's really a fault of the movie because I think it probably is, you know, it's just the way people are. (laughs) True to life. (laughs) Just true to life. (laughs) But, yeah. yeah, I think more of my issue with the film was just some of the storylines. I'm like, ooh, I feel like I feel like you don't need this. Did you yeah, think all I the interactions just... between Burt Lancaster and, and Deborah Kerr were no, weird? No, 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 no. <laughs> I think by far the stuff that works the least well about this movie are both of the women and their relationships with these guys, which honestly doesn't really surprise me that much because I'm always surprised when people are even trying to write women at all, if I'm being honest, in 1953. <laughs> I totally agree with you. This is a very flawed movie. There are parts of it that don't work for me. I guess there was just enough about it that I found intriguing that I was like, "Eh, yeah, okay. I'm marginal on this one, to be fair. I didn't feel like it was a year when there were like so many better things that truly deserve to win. I was like, I get why people are interested in this movie. I think it has faults. I think there are interesting things about it. I think Frank Sinatra's delightful. He's very good. I'm glad that he won the Oscar. He's super good. There were surgeons of his career because he'd had a little bit of a film career in the 40s and then he kind of went away for a while. And this was like, I'm coming back, baby. And I'm a good actor. And everyone was like, holy shit, you are. And they gave him an Oscar. (laughs) And he's so tiny. He's so little. <laughs> He's very charming. I think there there were just some interesting things that I didn't expect about this. I thought the Montgomery Clift thing with having blinded his friend was yeah, that's so sad. really interesting and such a wild story. And it was like a thing that he was taking a principled stance on that I understood why he would take mm-hmm. a stance on it, right? It totally makes sense that he doesn't want to box anyone anymore. And it's crazy that they're trying to make you. Yeah. <laughs> like, I get it. You have trauma about this. His speech to Lorraine, his girl about what happened I thought was really good Montgomery Clift was good in it Mm -hmm. I agree that I think there's some stuff about Lorraine his well her name's not even that whatever her real name Lorraine but also Alma Alma that's her name her you're sort of like run away from this guy like he shows some red flags pretty early in their relationship well he's so upset that she won't spend time with him and I'm like she's at work dude she's not your girlfriend she's at work and she's doing her job and the fact that you talk to her for five minutes and then she she wasn't there when you walked back over and then all of a sudden you're like I can't believe you're fucking ignoring me you're like this guy's a a walking red flag (laughs) I'm not into this and the Burt Lancaster stuff with his girl. First of all, it was wild that he just walks up to his boss's house and is like, I'm going to go seduce his wife today. <laughs> and you're like, okay. But also in that scene, she's like, my maid will be home soon. He's like, your maid is off on Thursday. I'm like, he's going to murder you. <laughs> yeah, he's so creepy. But he walks up to the house and is like, I'm going to seduce my boss's wife. And it fucking works. It's really Which did. is the wild part. And then you're like, okay, cool, whatever. She is very lonely because her husband fucking yeah. sucks. And she needs a boyfriend and Burt Lancaster's cute or whatever. So they go to the beach and they're having a fine time. And you're like, this is lovely. They're making out on the beach. It's great. And then as soon as they're kissing on the beach right after that, Burt Lancaster's like, you're a slut, basically. And you're like, what in the fuck? But (laughs) also he knew that. 
because the other guys on the base had that's told why him. he went to pick her up you're like i don't understand what's happening in your brain that you're hearing you're like oh these other guys talk about how they hooked up with the wife and you're like oh i bet that means that i could go hook up with the wife and then he does and then he's like why the fuck are you hooking up with men and you're like what is your problem psycho <laughs> I don't understand. And then she gives this heartbreaking speech about her mistreatment by her husband and how she had this miscarriage yeah. and then she had to have a his- hysterectomy and the husband almost let her die and like all this horrible stuff. And then he's like, okay, I guess we're fine now. And I'm like, I'm not fine. I'm never seeing you again, Burt Lancaster. But <laughs> there were just like some interesting moments. There were people with interesting opinions. I thought the structure was, though you're right, it did drag in places. I thought the structure was cool that you're just watching a romantic drama and then all of a sudden Pearl Harbor happens. I did like that because it I mean that's real life right Pearl Harbor no one knew it was coming so you're just leading your life and then all of a sudden yikes it was interesting Montgomery Cliff's whole thing is he loves the army right Mm -hmm. so he's willing to put up with all of this horrible treatment because he loves the army and that's where he wants to be and he sees himself as a soldier and that's like his whole identity and so by the end Donna Reed is like why don't you just leave? Clearly the army doesn't care about you. (laughs) Why are you letting them treat you this way? And he says, a man loves a thing. That doesn't mean it has to love you back. And you're like, that's a very interesting sentiment, but also antithetical to all of your beliefs about Donna Reed. Because as soon as you meet her and you're like, I love you. And she ignores you for two seconds. You're like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe he's grown as a person. (laughs) Maybe. I was shocked at the deaths. Frank Sinatra dies. Montgomery Cliff dies. You're like, Jesus, (laughs) I didn't see this happening. What else? What I need to talk about are the changes from the book. Did you read about this? I did. The book sounds like a real trip. Well, I'm fascinated by it because there's a lot of stuff in it where you're like, oh, that is actually very interesting. And then removing it is not great. (laughs) It's a problem that things got removed. But obviously it has to do with the code, Mm -hmm. the fucking code, and the fact that they needed to get army approval because they shot on a reel. Yes. Yeah. So there's interesting stuff with like, she really didn't have a miscarriage. Her husband gave her gonorrhea. Yeah, and you're like, that makes fucking sense. Her husband is cheating on her, and he's an asshole. And, uh, of course, she's the one who has to pay for the fact that her husband is an asshole. Right, so that's why she gets a hysterectomy. There's apparently, like, a lot of homosexual, not even undertones in the book. Yeah, like, they describe it as the enlisted men in the book are fraternizing with homosexuals. And one of them ends up killing himself, and you're like... I need context for all of these things. Yeah. <laughs> like, what does it mean that they are fraternizing? And why does he kill himself? What does all of this mean? But they had to get rid of all of that. Sure. To satisfy the code office. And, and then um, Montgomery Cliff's girlfriend in the novel is a prostitute. And here she's just host to a social club. Honestly, I is, feel like she is kind of implied. Yes. Yeah. She's a, like a hostess at a social club where you can go hang out with women. But then it is sort of like, well, if you come to this special back room for only VIP guests, you're like, eh, they're having Then we get there, to right? cuddle. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's happening in yeah. there, definitely. But then should we talk I about think- the change with the what happens to the captain? Or do you have other? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, no, I've, I'm, I want to talk about all the changes. Mm-hmm. I think they're very interesting. So the captain in the movie, which we didn't really say, who has been terrorizing Montgomery Clift, basically, to yeah. try to get him to box. In this, the brass finds out about it and they fire him they make him resign and they're they're going to send him to a court martial but they let him resign instead but in the book he just gets promoted he's been waiting for promotion and he gets his promotion and moves on and that's how he leaves which feels way more realistic (laughs) and it's obviously much more of an indictment of the military yeah and it was interesting to see that the director 
talks about how much he hates the scene where he gets in trouble and he's like that felt like a movie like part of a recruitment film (laughs) (laughs) it's just bullshit and another thing that was to satisfy the army that i thought was interesting is judson is the name of the guy who's torturing maggio in the stockade in the book you're actually seeing his torture of maggio which Mm -hmm. you don't in the movie which is not a surprise but they say that the army required them to make the implication that the torture he was receiving was because this guy was like a bad apple. And in the novel, it's more like army policy is sadistic, yeah. is the implication of it. That change really takes the teeth out of the it story does. of the book. And I guess there were other characters that had been in the prison that they combined with Maggio. And in the book, Maggio doesn't die, which I, I didn't mind that he died. I thought it was kind of shocking and yeah. interesting in the film. But to pacify the army, they implied that part of the reason he died is because he fell off of a truck while he was escaping right. instead of just because of his injuries that had been, you know, inflicted upon him. By him. So you're just like, part of what was interesting to me about it is what was going on in the book. It sounds like the book is fascinating. Yeah. It was apparently the most controversial book of its day. Yeah. So I'm sure they were like, you can't make that into a movie. It's impossible. <laughs> Even after all that bullshit they did, though, to change it, the army ended up not being satisfied with the cut that they made. Well, it still it still doesn't make the army seem great. <laughs> no. Yeah. Like I said, I was I was marginal on this one, but it had enough flaws that I was not necessarily excited about its win. Yeah, I don't know if I was excited, but there was stuff in it that I felt like I hadn't seen before and was intrigued by. And it also had many issues with its female characters in particular. (laughs) Okay, you want to talk about Julius Caesar? Yeah, let's talk about Julius Caesar. All right, Julius Caesar is the adaptation of the Shakespeare play of the same name. It is about the assassination of Julius Caesar. Rome is a republic. He is accruing power sort of through a cult of personality. He's on a path to being crowned emperor. A bunch of the senators are like, we would like to keep our democracy, please. Mm -hmm. And so they assassinate him. Instead of first saying, hey, Julius Caesar, what if you don't become emperor? That step sort of gets skipped. (laughs) Yeah, there may be different paths. What they, of course, as a result, accidentally do is create a martyr. Mark Antony is able to whip up the rabble about this. And With one of the greatest speeches so good. in written we'll talk history. About it. <laughs> yeah. And it devolves into a civil war between the senators of the Republic and Mark Antony and Julius Caesar's heir, Octavius. And then mm-hmm. the civil war happens, the senators lose, all the leaders of the assassination commit mm-hmm. suicide by making their friends stab them, which is it's messed not up. Great. Yeah, the poor friends. <laughs> that's a rough thing to do to your friend. But that's and spoiler alert for history. Octavius becomes the first emperor of Rome. Augustus Caesar, <laughs> which all eventually leads us to Caligula. It all's connected. Rome. <laughs> it's a pretty straightforward adaptation of the Shakespeare play. So obviously it's yes. fantastically written. There's great speeches. Tell me about how you felt about this adaptation of Julius. Yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of the play from reading it mm-hmm. in high school. We read it in our Shakespeare class. Yes. And it's one of those where it's like, it's a history and you're like, oh, this could be boring. Let's see how this is going into it. And then you read it and you're like, actually, this is really good. Like Shakespeare's the coolest. <laughs> yeah. I love that he starts it with a joke. The opening scene of it is just wordplay with all the of these. The soul like, souls joke is like. The soul souls mwah. joke. There's all guys just hanging out in the town square because they've all taken the day off to see Caesar come through. And so some of the senators are coming by going like, why are you all just 
out shouldn't you be at work or whatever and there's a guy who's a cobbler and he starts talking about how his job is saving people's souls and you're just like ah Shakespeare he never misses (laughs) yeah but yeah I mean it's hard to go wrong as it is written I thought the performances were good nobody was making me not like it (laughs) Marlon Brando was a lot of fun he delivers the hell out of the Friends Romans Countryman speech and hilariously critics were like super worried about them casting Marlon Brando in this Mm. because after Streetcar he had become known as the mumbler and they were like he doesn't have the diction to do Shakespeare Then, uh, they, they were pleasantly surprised by his performance in this. I will say there's a great bit. So he delivers the speech and then, you know, the rebels all roused up. And then mm-hmm. the, the camera shows him walking away from the steps where he's giving the speech and he just smirks. He's so pleased he's with like, himself. He's like, I crushed He's that. Like, and you're like, yeah, you did. did. You're like, this is a yeah, lot Yeah, you did. Yeah, I, I told you earlier, the Friends Romans Countryman's speech, which is like, one of the greatest speeches so ever in his use of like irony. It's just fucking great. I, after he finished it, I stopped while I was watching the movie and rewound and rewatched it because <laughs> I just love it so much. It's so good. I will say they cut out my favorite scene from the play, oh, no, which I was disappointed about, which is when the crowd that's all roused up kills Cinna the poet. Yeah, it is a good scene. I love that so much. So that's missing. It's, so it's not a one-to-one translation. Of well, it's play. only two hours. So yeah. I think the play is probably closer to three. It probably is. So they cut some stuff out, but I was sad to lose that where they kill him for his bad verse. But really, you know, it's just a little scene about mob mentality. Which you definitely get from the Friends Romans countryman scene. Yes. It's just so, it's that a fascinating commentary on human nature and crowds and how easily swayed everyone is. Is you get the beginning of it where Caesar's coming back into town because he's killed Pompey. The reason they're all hanging out at the beginning is because they want to celebrate him for his victory. And at first, the senators are walking through being like, you guys all used to love Pompey. What is wrong with you all? Why have you, you loved this guy and now you loved someone who murdered them? Like, what's your deal? So it's about that. But then when you get to Caesar has died, Brutus gives this speech. He His agreement with Mark Antony is Mark Antony can go out and give a, a yeah. eulogy of Caesar, but only if Brutus speaks first, which he honestly have, I thought was pretty second. dumb on Brutus's part. <laughs> but Brutus gives this speech and he pretty much convinces the whole crowd that they were right to kill Caesar. Yeah, that he was gunning to be a tyrant. And so everyone's on his side and then Mark Antony comes out. And the speech is so good. It's all like, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Yeah. But then he just praises the shit out of him. And he's like, and you know me, I'm not great. Like, I'm just an average, I'm just a guy like you guys. Yeah. Well, and he keeps saying, and Brutus is an honorable man. Brutus says this, and Brutus is an honorable yeah. man. It's so goddamn good. What a great speech. And so then he turns everyone around and everyone who had just been ready to be like, fuck Julius Caesar. We always hated him. Now they're like, oh my God, we love Julius Caesar. Right, we did love him. He was we the best. We did. Him. support him and want him to destroy our democracy you're right there's nothing about the transition to film that's particularly spectacular necessarily i think it really is just the fact that it's a great play and everything else this year was fine yeah i think they mostly just got out of the way because i don't think they did anything where you're like wow i didn't even imagine it could be so cool on screen it just sort of is the play yeah so if you like the play, which you should like the play. It's a great It's play. a good play. You'll probably like it. And everyone is pleasantly surprised by Marlon Brando. He's good. He was I, really good. James Mason I was like good him. as Brutus, too. I enjoyed him. Yeah. This was another one where Caesar's wife begs him not to leave the house because she knows that he's going to go get murdered. 
Well, that one's at least a little bit more fun because she has this prophetic dream about him dying. And then this guy comes yeah. in who's part of the conspiracy and he's like, that's not what that dream means at all. You're well, ridiculous. It's, yeah, you're right. It's great because she's like, I had a dream you were going to die. Yeah. And Caesar's like, I don't know about that. And she really is like, please, if you love me at all, <laughs> stay home. Mm-hmm. And he's like, OK, you're right. I do love you. I will stay home. And then, yeah, the friend part of the conspiracy shows up and he's like, actually, here's the reading of your dream. <laughs> right. Because her dream was that Caesar was bleeding and everyone was washing their hands in his blood. And the the guy's like, actually, what that means is he gives of himself to the people and they all receive his bounty. (laughs) So you're like, like, oh, at least it's got this guy being like, well, really, it means this. Yeah, that that is good. But it is a third scene of a wife being like, please go, don't go die. And he's like, I will go die. You're like, men, man. Okay. Did you read this about the conflict between James Mason and Marlon Brando on set? I did not read it. anything about that, but that sounds so, fun. Okay, during filming, James Mason, who plays Brutus, yes. started becoming concerned that Marlon Brando was stealing the audience's sympathy away from him and his character, Brutus. So Mason appealed to the writer-director Bankwitz, requesting that the director stop Brando from dominating the film and, quote, put the focus back where it belongs, namely on me. (laughs) So then there was sort of like a shift in attitude and there started being more scenes for the Brutus character and then Brando threatened to walk off the film if Mankiewicz, quote, threw one more scene to Mason. And he started accusing Mankiewicz and Mason of having like a threesome with Mason's wife. Like there was a whole (laughs) thing (laughs) happening. And then, despite the feuding, production continued with only minimal disruption thanks to what Gilgood called Mankiewicz's consummate tact that kept us together and working as a unit. But I'm obsessed with that because who's not on Mark Anthony's side with his speech? Brutus, like, it's just very interesting to me that he's like, you need to get the audience to love me. (laughs) That's kind of not the point of the scene. Exactly. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah. Good times. (laughs) James Mason. Yeah, it's good, but primarily on the strength of the play, which is excellent. But yeah, amazing quote unquote script. Uh, we are we were commenting earlier about people getting writing credits for Shakespeare things, and it's like Shakespeare doesn't even get like a story by credit here. Yeah, like honestly. that man deserves some Oscars. <laughs> Shakespeare should definitely have some Oscars. So I would have been fine with it winning, even though I don't think really the filmmaking of it is what made it so good. No. All right. That's our five films. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that should be in the conversation or that we may or may not have watched in preparation for this episode? We did watch two other films this year, Stalag 17 and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Which one do you want to talk about first? Either. Okay. Either is fine. We can do Stalag 17 first because it's first in our outline for some reason. Stalag 17 is a movie about a group of POWs in Germany during World War II. And they're living their lives. And it turns out that one of them's been snitching to the Mm. Germans about all their illicit activities. And they all think it's William Holden's character because he's constantly getting like cool stuff from the Germans. (laughs) He's a trading he's guy. a canny he's wheeling and dealing he's a canny trader and so it's kind of like a mix of just comedy scenes and then this little mystery about who's really telling the germans what's going on and it turns out spoiler alert as always it's their security chief who is a plant this fucking guy he's so clearly a nazi he couldn't look more aryan he's yeah. like really tall and blonde and everyone else <laughs> 
everyone else is, you know, squat and dark haired. Yeah. It's kind of hilarious. So this is a Billy Wilder movie who people will know from a lot of other stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we've talked about before of his, I think, is just Nanachka. Yeah. But we will be we will be seeing much more Billy Wilder over the course of this. So there is this like humorous tone to it, which I think is very interesting for the setting and mm-hmm. subject matter of it. It's based on a play that was written by two guys who actually were prisoners in Stalag 17 during World War II, which is very yeah. interesting that this was their take on it. Because a lot of it, while there is the mystery, which is pulling you through the story of it, it's mostly just about the guys and what they were like yeah. and like, how they, how they got their days. through this and what their dynamics were and trying to make the best of it there's this scene towards the end where it's christmas and they're having a christmas party and people are playing music and all of them are dancing with each other and you're like sweet this is adorable (laughs) it is so sweet all the men dancing with each other it was so cute they love to dance they just want to dance and so they're they only have each other and i guess they gotta dance and it was like lovely (laughs) i loved them they did really care about each other which was sweet so i thought the tone of it was really interesting and i liked it yeah. I liked Dialog 17. I thought William Holden was very charming. Yeah, he won Best Actor for this role. Which, hilariously, he gave one of the shortest speeches in Oscars history because they cut him off. So all he got, had time to say was, thank you, thank you. <laughs> and then he ended up taking out an ad in the trades to thank the people he wanted to thank and say that he thought that either Burt Lancaster or Montgomery Clift should have won. And that it was really a consolation prize award because he didn't win for Sunset Boulevard. Right. But he was good. Yeah, he was good. He's very good. I won't say he's a background character, but he's not like the lead lead Right, is part of what's interesting. He's sort of existing kind of on the periphery of the story for parts of it, probably because they don't want you in his perspective, because at first you don't really know if he is the guy who mm-hmm. is the, the snitch. But he's cool and he's charming and he lights matches on other people's uniforms, which I loved. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was awesome because at first it's like he's doing them doing it to annoy them yeah. and then finally at the end when they find out that he wasn't the snitch and he's he the coolest is, guy he's ever. He's actually the coolest and like a hero and he does it again and the guy he lit the match like, on has this face yeah. like he was so I can't believe he did that he's so cool. <laughs> Which was delightful. So yeah. Yeah. I thought it was good. I think again like I wasn't blown away by it. Could it have been nominated for best picture? Sure. I mean I think so, because we were so not enthused by some of these other things. <laughs> I enjoyed it more than a few of the uh, I certainly enjoyed nominees. watching it more, yeah. So I liked it. That's Dialogue awesome. 17, everybody. And then, yes, we also watched Gentlemen Prefer Blonde, a Marilyn Monroe classic. Classic, yes. This is She was in several movies this year, actually. So mm-hmm. we just picked Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, because I feel like it is at least marginally a more iconic film. which was the one that was in the top five at the box office yeah we could have watched it but we did also interestingly they're kind of about similar things (laughs) so tell me about gentlemen prefer blondes so marilyn monroe and jane russell are two showgirls who have a difference of opinion about what kind of man to pursue marilyn likes a rich man and jane likes a fit man yeah and so marilyn has a fiance who's a, a rich man and they're going to go to Europe, but he has some like business to attend to. So he sends them on ahead with Jane Russell as her escort. They get on the boat and Marilyn runs into this guy. What's his nickname? Piggy. Yeah. Piggy. <laughs> Piggy who owns a diamond mine in South Africa. And of course she's very interested in him and his diamond oh, yeah. mine. 
But she is interested in him mostly for her friend. Yeah, because she's convinced everyone should marry a rich man, of course. And so she's hanging out with Piggy. Meanwhile, the fiance's dad is pretty suspicious of her. So he sent this PI to like catch her in a compromising situation. And he does. Even though she's not really doing anything that objectionable. No, he takes a photo of them that looks compromising, I should say. It isn't yeah. compromising. Yeah, yeah. So there's a bit of the movie where they're trying to get the, the footage back from the guy and they're able to do it. And Marilyn tells Piggy and he's so grateful that she convinces him to give her his wife's tiara. And he does. And so she gets this tiara. They dock. They're having a great time in Paris. And then they get back to the hotel and the wife has shown up and she's like, you stole my tiara. And the fiance's dad has learned about the compromising photo. So he cuts off their line of credit so they're now stuck in Paris they open a review because they're very talented showgirls and Mm -hmm. so once again they're just independent women living their lives having this great review but the law catches up with Marilyn she's going to give the tiara back but it's been stolen the fiance is shown back up Jane mm-hmm. Russell goes in Marilyn's stead to the court pretending to be here. So Marilyn Wearing can, butter a up, wig. can butter up the fiance. And, and then it's revealed that Piggy had, in fact, stolen the tiara back without telling anyone. And everything is resolved. Marilyn ends up with the fiance after telling off his father by explaining, like, mm-hmm. of course, I should marry a rich man, just like men prefer to marry pretty women. And wouldn't you want your daughter to marry a rich man and not a poor yeah. man? So, like, get and it the, together, the rich dude. guy's, like, totally convinced by her <laughs> argument. And he's like, wow, you're really making a good point <laughs> and jane russell ends up getting together with the pi though i think the pi is pretty judgmental about Marilyn, which i did not yeah. enjoy yeah but it's a it's a musical there's some really really fun musical numbers there's the mm-hmm. iconic diamonds our girl's best friend musical number it's iconic it's super watchable yep. the costumes are incredible the costumes are stunning the dialogue is snappy it's mm-hmm. written by the guy who wrote his girl friday one of my favorite screwball comedies i think it's like what it's it's a a tight 93 minutes or something yeah i think it's like 90 minutes which is exactly as long as a movie should be yeah ideal length for a film it's a fun time i enjoyed it good musical numbers which were not directed by howard hawks the director of the film as we learned they were actually directed by the choreographer also, Gwen Verdon was assistant choreographer on this. Gwen Verdon, who, you know, marries Bob Fosse and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I will say, so obviously the most iconic number from this is Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. But I really love Jane Russell's number where, like, the Olympians the were, like, showgirls. Yeah. Yeah, they fun. all are, like, showgirls. Yeah, she's cool. I thought both the women are hilarious. Mm-hmm. They're really funny. Marilyn is doing what she ended up getting horribly typecast as for the rest of her career, but she's doing what becomes the most iconic dumb blonde performance ever, where she's super lovely and says all sorts of stuff all the time where you're like, that doesn't even make any sense. What are you talking about? But then she has these like moments of genius yeah. where you're like, she actually knows what's up. Marilyn. Everyone should be listening to her more often. It was interesting watching it. I actually haven't seen a Marilyn Monroe movie before. And obviously, like, I've seen clips of her, but watching it over a long period of time, I think Ben Stiller's Zoolander voice is based on her her sort of breathy I can absolutely (laughs) see some connections between that. That's very interesting. Sounds exactly like her. She is breathy. Yeah. She's stunning in this she's beautiful she's incredibly she really is a beautiful gorgeous woman. 
And the dynamic between the two friends is just delightful. They have this lovely relationship where they're sort of like almost sisters Mm -hmm. and they know each other super well and they get along really well. And they have that. It's actually explicitly named in this where the PI guy starts saying something about Marilyn and Jane Russell's character is like, only I talk about (laughs) Lorelai. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I did not love that Lorelai constantly calls her fiance daddy. Yeah, that was weird. I was like, did this like, is this a thing at the time or did this start that as a thing? Like, what's the deal with her calling him daddy all the time? It's really weird. I didn't like it. But it totally works on him. I mean, she's incredibly good at getting what she wants. But what's interesting is, even though she is manipulating him and everyone understands that that's what's happening, it never feels like she's malicious or anything. No, she she says she loves him and I believe her. Yeah, because he does seem sweet, honestly. Mm -hmm. Like, he doesn't feel like the sharpest tool in the bag or whatever, but he seems like kind of a nice guy. And she's like, there's no millionaire out there that's sweeter than him or will do what I want more often. So you're like, yeah, you seem like a good pair. Why not? And he was very good. I thought that guy in the role, he was funny. I liked him too. My least favorite thing about it, I think, was the relationship between Jane Russell and the PI. It didn't come together as much as I wanted it to because I didn't feel like he had as much of a moment where he was like, I was so wrong Mm -hmm. (laughs) about, like, you know, Marilyn or whatever, like anything. I just felt like at the end... She was like, and I'm in love with you. And he was like, oh, good. But a a fun time, certainly. Could have been nominated? Sure, I don't care. I'll tell you, it has more cultural relevance than the robe, say. I mean, Diamonds are a girl's best friend. You've seen it five million times, done by Mm -hmm. everyone. So, Mm -hmm. Oh, Marilyn. If only it had been shot in Cinemascope. Truly. Think of how many Olympic dancers we could have gotten on screen in CinemaScope. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So we talked about the box office. Three of our five were on the top five. So that's pretty cool. Cultural impact. I would say from here to eternity, that beach makeout scene. Definite Mm -hmm. cultural impact. Roman Holiday. That I think still has cultural impact today. I think the kid from Shane has dropped off. I don't know if I would have recognized it, but I I can tell you it was being parodied on Batman in like 68. So at least until 68, that lasted. And then of our not nominees, obviously gentlemen prefer blondes. Mm -hmm. That's got all of the cultural cachet. Looking at best of lists and the like, interestingly, the only film of this year on the AFI top 100 list now, since obviously yeah. From Here to Eternity dropped off, is Shane. How do we feel about that? I mean, I don't care for it. But, <laughs> you know, again, it's it's interesting to hear other people talk about Shane and how much it, it influenced them. And then we're going to watch so many Westerns, I'm sure, that our, <laughs> our views on Westerns is going to be rounded out. So maybe once we are more literate in the genre, we'll be like, ah, yes, I, I see why Shane. And to be fair, it is a story that has been told again again. I don't know if this is the first version of that, maybe. I don't think it is. Yeah. Because the, listening to people talk about it, they're sort of like, yeah, it's a story we've heard before, but this is the stuff that makes it interesting. The like style of it is so different. And the they describe the boy as being a big part of why it felt so different, which in my mind is a negative. Yeah, but- <laughs> the boy's terrible. I guess, you know... 
When we did the year that Roadhouse came out in, I said I wouldn't advocate for it to be nominated for Best Picture, but I guess I'm advocating it for it to replace Shane on the AFI Top 100 list because Roadhouse and rules. I think that's fair. <laughs> and Swayze is cool as hell. Swayze is so much cooler than Alan Ladd. All right. Well, we have our quibbles with the AFI Top 100 list Indeed. as usual. What do we think should have won? I mean, I'm going with Julius Caesar, but it's not the the strongest I've ever felt. Yeah. I mean, part of, I guess, why I'm fine with it being From Here to Eternity, despite its many flaws, is I do feel like there's a uniqueness to it. There's something interesting about it that is not Julius Caesar. Like, Julius Caesar is a very fine adaptation of a thing that I've seen good adaptations of before. And so at least From Here to Eternity is its own thing, even though it could have certainly been better than it was. All right. So, yeah, no strong feelings on my end. So did the Oscars get it wrong? I guess. I There's nothing this year where I'm like, oh, my God, you really missed the, the boat on this one, Oscars. This is clearly just a, a great, just the greatest movie. <laughs> right. I'm glad I've seen From Here to Eternity now yeah. because the, that beach scene is so iconic. It is. It's better than Pearl Harbor. I haven't seen Pearl Harbor. Josh Hartnett movie. Okay. <laughs> It might be the best movie about Pearl Harbor. Maybe so. All right. I, I'm fine with it. I don't think they got it, like, at least glaringly wrong. Yeah. All right. The more important question. Let's take it over to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner. Yes. And see what, if they're, obviously he's not alive this year. No. Unfortunately. Does anything come to mind for you as a potential Jake Gyllenhaal vehicle? I feel like he would could play the Montgomery Clift role in From Here to Eternity. I think that's probably... The most interesting performance and role and character we have of the nominees this year. He's yeah. got a lot going on. I mean, leaving aside like how fun it would be to do speeches at Julius Caesar yeah. or something. Yeah, I think I think he's the most interesting character. I could definitely see him in that. I could see him. Obviously, it's not a nominee, but I could see him hanging out in Stalag Seventeen. Yeah, I think he'd be a fun addition to that crew. He probably can't play the security because he's not Aryan enough. No, he looks more Jewish than not. Yeah. But yeah, I think Montgomery Clift is sort of the meatiest of the roles Mm -hmm. and would be fun. And there's just something very interesting about that story about blinding his friend. I think that is like going to stick with him. Yeah. And the fact that everyone was like, who cares? You accidentally blinded a guy. It happens. Oh, wait, no. There's a quote I wrote down that I didn't say when we were talking about it that was about that. So, yeah, he's talking about how he blinded the guy and that's why he stopped boxing. And his commanding officer says, you might as well say stop war because one man got killed. It's not the same thing. But it also like maybe we should stop war. You know, that's fair. (laughs) When you put it like that. When you put it like that. There were good lines in From Here to Eternity, too. Yeah. Okay, conclusions. Conclusions. Do you see yourself coming back to any of these films? I mean, in our classic, if it were on, if Gentlemen Prefer Blondes were on, I'd watch portions of it. I'd be like, oh, what musical number is coming up? All right. Look yeah, at that. That's fair. I'd rewatch Marlon Brando deliver the Friends from and Countryman speech. Maybe pull that up on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. I'd rewatch anybody perform that speech, if I'm being honest. I might tell people that they should watch Stalag 17. I think it's an interesting time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I'm probably not coming back to rewatch any of these very soon, at least. No. Yeah. Have we learned anything? What happens when there's kind of a weak crop of films? <laughs> the Academy. 
what is there to be done? I would say I feel like they did their best generally. I don't know that the robe should have been nominated, but I really do wonder if that's like a CinemaScope technological advancement situation more than anything else. That could certainly be. I mean, clearly where people were into it, if the number two highest grossing movie of the year was This is Cinerama. God, it really is. It's Cinerama. Oh my God, it's Cinerama. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know what we've learned, really. From here to eternity has scope. It has yeah, drama. It, it has men and women and their relationships. Yeah. It's got kind of a brawling cast of characters. There's a lot going on. So yeah, I think that probably contributed. It felt to me different than all of the other nominees yeah it didn't take place in rome it didn't take place in rome it had that going for it i just why is everybody so obsessed with the civil war in this year too oh yeah we forgot to mention montgomery cliff's character is robert e lee robert e lee pruitt the fuck why and it's not even a part, it's not like a part of his character. It doesn't come up. At one point at the end, I think she does say like, he's a Southern boy or something. And you're like, okay. <laughs> it's but, completely unnecessary. Yeah. Why? That doesn't mean the same thing to audiences of 1953 as it means to us is the moral of the story. I think for them, they were like, oh, he's a good old Southern boy. Mm-hmm. That's why he's named that. And for us, you're like, why the fuck Jesus are you bringing Christ. that up? Christ. Come on. All right. Let's check in with our patterns. Okay. Do we have angry white guys? So many. Yeah. Obviously, I already mentioned toxic masculinity today. To me, that's a Western thing. Yeah. (laughs) It's the closest analog to where we are with our conception of angry white guys. I don't know what their deal is. They're all so violent and angry, and I don't understand why. Calm down. Who cares? Calm down, everybody. Let people grow their fucking corn or whatever they're trying to grow out yeah. there. His little homestead was so small. It was. And the guy was like, I have to run my cattle through your yard. It's like, why, man? There's like 12 plants in there. Chill out. <laughs> uh, do we have any biopics? We don't. That's fascinating. That is interesting. The closest we have to a biopic is Julius Caesar. <laughs> I mean, it's not really about him. He dies really early on. He really does. All right. And then original ideas, quote unquote. Obviously, From Here to Eternity, we talked about based on a book, Caesar, Mm -hmm. based on a play. What about Rowan Holiday? Just a Dalton Trumbo original? That man had ideas. Okay, Shane's based on a novel. Rowan Holiday, I think, is an original idea. I guess The Robe is an original idea. No, I don't want to buy a robe. (laughs) Did you mean a robe? (laughs) Here are some robes. Oh, no, it's based on a novel. Roman Holiday? No, The Robe. Oh, The Robe. Okay, so we've got four based on something, and I think Roman Holiday is the original idea. Interesting. 80%. Here's my takeaway. Audrey Hepburn, fucking adorable. Marilyn Monroe, God, she's beautiful. People be looking good in these things. Your your takeaway is actors are attractive. Actors are pretty, is what I learned. Yeah, I mean, there really wasn't that much else to take away from this crop of pictures, I think. 1953, you guys, what a year. I mean, here's the thing. There was too much going on in the world for there to be good stuff going on on screen. People were busy. You say that like we didn't do 61 and it was good. 
I don't know. I can't I can't come up with a conclusion. There's no explaining it. Well, Natty, if you enjoyed this year and enjoyed the robe, you're going to love the next year that we do. No. The 29th Academy Awards or the films of 1956. That's right. We're just a few years later. And the entire scope of what Hollywood was producing is completely different, right? No. The <laughs> nominees were Around the World in 80 Days, Friendly Persuasion, Giant, The King and I, and The Ten Commandments. Hey, man, at least we're going to be done with it soon. That movie is (laughs) 220 minutes long. Don't tell me that. I don't (laughs) even know that. Dear God. Okay. Looking forward to that. Have you seen any of these movies? I haven't. These will all be new to me. I have seen The King and I. Nice. Love a musical. Sure. All right. Well, I guess we'll go off and watch that now. In the meantime, if people have comments, questions, concerns, thoughts to share, something to tell me about why people love Shane so much, can anyone explain it to me? Reach out to us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com, and we are on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 